0: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast Conversations that Satisfy Your Curious Mind. I'm John Rojas and you're stuck with me this week because Chris is on the other side of the country for work. All right, before we dive into things, I wanted to get into some housekeeping items, just get those out of the way. So if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod, on Instagram, Smart People Podcast, Facebook, Smart People Podcast. And you can always come to our website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, what are you waiting for? Head over to iTunes, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and subscribe to the show. And if you enjoy it, go ahead and leave a review. And it's always easy to get in touch with the show. You can either email us at smartpeoplepodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod, or on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you want to reach out, you can always reach out to us. All right, let's jump into this week's guest. This week, we talk to Joan C. Williams. Joan's most recent book is White Working Class Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. And Chris talks about a lot of awesome stuff with Joan this week. Him and Joan get into conversation about how populism is really fueled by the white working class, which is both looked down upon and forgotten, despite having such a hard work ethic and good jobs. So when you think about it, these are nurses, plumbers, electricians, vet techs, they work hard, they don't get a ton of money for it, and yet they get nothing from anyone. So these folks aren't poor enough to be helped, and they don't want handouts anyway, but they don't have enough money or mobility or even education to get a better job. And even if they did, they don't want it. They see the elite class as useless pencil pushers. So strap in, this is a good one. And now on to the interview with Joan C. Williams. Enjoy.
1: Well, Joan, thank you so much for being on the show and being so dedicated that you locked your cat out of the room so that we would be uninterrupted.
2: Yes, true dedication. (laughs) Olaf thanks you.
1: Yeah, Olaf, I love it. Well, you know, in the intro... I'll talk a lot about the impact your book had on me, and I, I truly mean it, uh, but I don't want to waste any time with that. I just want to get into it because it is such critical information, and I think it's necessary to start here. The book is White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America, and I want to ask you, why white working class? What are the biggest differences between white working class and other races in America?
2: Well, the reason that it's about the white working class is that it was a marked shift to Trump by the white working class in a few uh, heartland states that that, uh, delivered the election to Trump. So I thought it was pretty important for people to understand what was going on with the white working class because the way the electoral college works, the, these folks in rust belt states have disproportionate electoral power, um, and that's not going to go away because we're not going to um, eliminate the electoral college. Mm. Um, there and the the so that's why it focuses on the white working class. the solutions um, are will help working class people of all races. So the problem, to understand the problem, you have to focus on the white working class. To understand the solutions, these are solutions that will help working class people of color as well. Uh-huh. In terms of what makes the white working class different, um, the white working class, and just define who I mean by white working class, we, we tend to call them white working class, they're in fact the middle. They're not the, they are not the, the poor. Um, I think of, for, to understand what's going on in American politics, you need to think in terms of three classes. The bottom 30% are, are, are low-income people. The top, roughly 20%, are what I call the professional managerial elite. What I'm talking about is the middle class, the middle 53%. And they are really, really different from the professional managerial elite, much Um, Less different um, are people from the white working class and people of color from the working class. They are much more like each other than either group is like the professional manager elite, although there is one difference that's politically very important, and that is that if you consider just the black and the white working class, by which I really kind of mean at this point blue-collar guys. Uh, White, um, blue-collar guys are very judgmental of the poor, whereas black, working-class guys are more likely to have a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I attitude towards the poor, and that creates really different attitudes towards so-called entitlement programs.
1: I want to reiterate what you said about who the white working class is, because and you go in this in great detail in your book. I think it's necessary to understand both the monetary aspect, so salary, how much they make and the educational aspect of white working class. You mentioned it's 53 percent, but I think and you highlight it so beautifully in this book. People, you had a friend, I think, who was a lawyer making $220,000, and then there was somebody else making $20,000, and both of them thought they were working class. Because I at least always believe that there's poor, there's most everyone else, and then there's the rich, like the rich, right? Millions and millions. And you do such a great job of explaining, wait, let's talk about this is a majority, but most people who think they're in it might not be. So please more clearly define who the white working class is for us.
2: The way that I defined defined the white working class stems from a report that I wrote with Heather Boucher of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And we we defined um, the poor as the bottom 30% by household income, the professional managerial elite as households with one college grad Who were in the top 20 percent? So that's about 16, 17 percent. And then the middle class, as the the people, everyone in the middle. Mm. So the median annual income, very roughly, of the poor is like 22,000. This is household income. The median of the white working class is in the high 70s, and the median of the professional managerial elite. Is um, in in the range of $120,000 household income then.
1: Okay, great. And where would you end the top of the working class income household?
2: You know, this is the, the spurious precision yeah. Of
1: numbers. Yeah. You know,
2: yeah. So what I'm trying to do is to define both something, both by economics and by culture. And if you could have somebody who um, is a household with a, a nurse, and a plumber and they could be earning over $100,000 and yet still culturally be more like um, a kind of middle class you know family than a professional managerial elite family but that would be the upper range
1: you highlighted that for me plumbers can make you know 60 70 up to 100,000 in big cities then you have these medical technicians 50 60 i mean that's a great living but it's all the other things which we're going to get into. I also wanted to ask does it vary by location? So do you ever do that cost adjusted analysis, right? If you live in say rural Texas making 100,000 or 80,000 you're probably rich. I have no idea. Uh, you live in New York City, San Francisco, D.C., making that you are really struggling.
2: Yes, you are struggling. You know, again, this is this is uh, it's really hard to define class. Right. It's really hard to define class because it's fundamentally in some ways the most for what I'm doing. The cultural class, the different class cultures are what I'm trying to get at. So uh, we're trying that if you need a single proxy for class, it is college grads versus, um, everybody else mm-hmm. or college grads versus, um, people who, uh, college grads on the high end and people who didn't complete high school on the low end, because, um, I mean, this is kind of wonky, but this is called smart people podcast. Exactly.
1: Oh yeah. Get into it.
2: A lot of what has been written since the election saying, no, it wasn't the white working class who voted in Trump and um, no, it's not that uh, uh, sort of denying the white working class phenomenon separates people who earn below fifty thousand and people who earn above fifty thousand. Yeah. Well that's like metaphysically perfect because you're not going to understand the middle class if you divide them in them you know you divide them up between the rich and the poor. Right. you know you said that you're your kind of default understanding of class in America is that there was the poor and the extremely rich and everybody else. That is the default understanding in the professional managerial elite of Mm -hmm. what the class structure looks like. Right. And so, um, this, the, there's a, there've been two influential studies that say, no, it's not about the white working class because, uh, the working class, defining the working class as everybody below $50,000, um, didn't disproportionately vote for Trump and and that a lot of people in the rich, well, I mean, here's the fact, um, very re- remarkably few poor people voted for Trump. So if you divide the middle class in the middle and lump them with the poor and call that the working class, you are going to erase the white working class effect. You are literally erasing them from the horizon. And if you erase them from the horizon newsflash. You ain't going to see them.
1: Right. And the more they get erased or marginalized or just lumped in, as your book explains, the more they rebel, which is what got us here, essentially.
2: The contemporary American tragedy, as we speak, is that um, we have economic populism linked with racial scapegoating uh, on the right. And On the left, we have no effective response. Now the obvious effective response from the left would be economic populism, not linked with racial scapegoating. And if we did that, we could be attracting not all, but a significant proportion of the group that I'm talking about. And by the way, we would be more consistently acting on, on our ideals. And so why that's proved so difficult for people to, to kind of act on has been intriguing and disheartening.
1: So I want to ask this. You mentioned the T word a few times, Trump. And I want to ask you if this is a partisan book and is it political? Because, you know, we undoubtedly have people from all classes, all races and literally all countries who listen are they going to be turned off by this idea? Well, this is all about explaining Trump, because, again, I, I I've read this book twice now, highlighted notes. It for me was an education in class in America, not specifically politically or Trump related. But I'm curious if your intentions were a certain way and if it's being received a certain way.
2: Um, I have been saying this roughly the same thing, depending on how you count Um for ten years or forty years, um, I actually wrote the first version of the White Working Class book and published it in 2009, um, which I gave as the Massey lectures at Harvard. It was then entitled o- Obama Eats Ar- Arugula, um, talking about the class dynamic in American politics. And I've done a lot of I've done a lot of work on gender, and that stuff walks out the door into the culture. And I did this stuff on class, and it's like it's like people put their fingers in their ears, like, la, la, la. Wow. They did not want to hear it. Uh, it fell like a stone. And I thought, like, well, okay, I mean, the stuff is super controversial and hard to get a conversation going about class in America. You know, you win some, you lose some. That one I lost. And then the night of the election, Uh when I realized Trump was going to win very early in the evening, I went home and started writing the essay that now is one of the, you know, that went viral Mm -hmm. um, in the Harvard Business Review because I said, you know, now I'm going to say it and I'm going to say it really directly because people, this is no longer optional. Understanding class dynamics in America is no longer optional. I wrote the book not as a partisan book. I mean, one of the proudest, my proudest weeks on book tour, I had a, um, I had a, did a slate podcast and I was on Fox News and I got positive response in both arenas. Wow. Uh, I am, and I'm very open. I I identified myself on Fox News as San Francisco liberal. I am who I am. I've never tried to hide that. Um, I'm a San Francisco liberal that's worked chiefly on race and gender my whole life and wow. worked on social inequality my whole life. Class is part of that, by the way. Um, but I'm trying to explain to people um, – I'm trying to explain a group of Americans to another group of Americans. And, you know, last <laughs> night I saw the – Mr. Rogers neighborhood movie, the documentary fabulous, by the way, if you haven't seen it and um, realize that in some ways, Mr. Rogers is one of my role models in life. I'm trying to explain a group of people to another group of people and say, I got a great idea. Let's treat each other with respect.
1: The other thing I, I wanted to ask was this idea of class cluelessness. I think we get you get this from what we've been talking about but class callousness. And when you talked about, I mean, growing up, look, I watched The Simpsons, right? And whether or not that show had any influence, you tend to believe, okay, there's this set of white working class, they're uneducated, they're drunks, they're, you know, unintelligent, etc. But the impact that shows like that not to call it the Simpsons, I think they're great, but in, in so many different arenas actually lead to a looking down on certain classes. And by the way, at that time, we very much fell in the working class, which is even funnier. Um, huh. But huh. but uh, they actually can lead to a belief system that carries with you unless you address it.
2: Well, I mean, that's, that is human beings. I mean, human beings establish hierarchies. And one of the characteristics of hierarchies are that people higher on the hierarchy stereotype people lower on the hierarchy as lacking in competence. That operates by gender, that operates by race, and it also operates by class.
1: Yeah. And just to notice it, as I mentioned, your book highlights that, the class callousness.
2: I think I've thought a lot. I mean, first of all, I think it's pretty amazing, a gift from Mr. Trump, thank you, Mr. Trump, hmm. that we actually have a conversation about class in the U.S., probably for the first time since the 1930s. Um, that is a pretty, uh, that's an important step forward, although it's remained very controversial. But one of the characteristics of the conversations, sort of default conversation about class in, in my crowd, is this sort of staggering condescension which, of course, Clinton, bless her heart, um, reflected to her, to her pain and sorrow, um, in by calling, whole, writing off huge groups of people in the United States as deplorable.
1: Deplorable. Oh, deplorables. Hillary.
2: Um, that um, that condescension uh, is, is kind of what you get when higher status groups look down at lower status groups without running it through, through their heads. Now, white people used to talk about black people in that way, and men used to talk about women in that way. But gradually, over the last 40 years, we have learned to run that through our heads and self-correct cognitively. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get people, when they feel that condescension, towards people in the in the middle class in the US that they run it through their heads. And that's it's because otherwise it's it's called the hidden injuries of class. It's deeply deeply hurtful and it's it's number one inconsistent with our ideals as, Amer- as Americans. Number two, it's really poisoning American politics.
1: Yeah, and you know there was something that you mentioned before we hit record, which was you've gotten pushback on this book. It's been highly controversial. And I'm not going to lie, that was a little bit surprising to me. And maybe that's I'm just dense. But it, it seemed like you were holding a light on a group that has been in the dark. So how could anyone disparage that? What has been the most Prevalent negative feedback you've received
2: well I mean the group that just adores this book are people I call class migrants people who grew up in non elite contexts and now are part of the professional class oh. they read this book and am I did I did you say you're that's you
1: y- yeah that, maybe yeah, that's, that's why that's, I love that. this book so much yeah
2: that um, they love this class migrants love this book because it puts words to their experience and there's this crashing silence about class in the US. There always has been. I mean, historians have written about this. So it's it's a confusing class location. So they read this book and like, oh yeah, that what she said, that's what's going on here.
0: Yeah.
2: Um so class migrants tend to really love this book, but the reason it's controversial is because um So long as there's no conversation about class, the professional managerial elite can tell themselves a distinctly American story, which is that they are where they are due to merit. And they point to the very few class migrants who make it to the professional managerial elite as evidence that they just got where they are through merit. If you start a conversation about class, and people have to acknowledge not only their gender privilege and their and their racial privilege but their class privilege that's deeply threatening to people who have always told themselves the story that they are where they are and they're on the top of society because they've worked hard and they're smart and that's ex- that's the only reason if you have to add oh and by the way i had class privilege that's a very different story
1: huh Wow. So- I, I just got so many goosebumps and my listeners know what that means because I have privileged my, my parents paid for my college. I mean, in a nutshell, I feel like that defines your class. Right. But I watched them transition. Right. I was I was part of that. Like we we, mm. we moved. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in one neighborhood, which was fantastic. And then I moved to literally one of the most affluent in the country. Right. In my kind of formative years, like early teenage. So I did not look at this as chastising the elite. I, it literally reinforced to me, I'm lucky. Go tell my parents, thank you for working so hard your entire life to provide me the luck that got me to where I am. I work no harder. Literally, this hit me yesterday. I, I, I flew home. Mm-hmm. I got in really late last night from my flight from work. I'm going up the escalator. It's 1 a.m. And there's somebody else coming down the escalator. This woman works as a masseuse in an airport, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And,
1: and she's in a, you know, yeah. she's she's another uh, race and that's fine. And mm-hmm. I literally thought to myself, because I make in a, in a day, like I, I get paid by the day, not because I'm a consultant, mm-hmm. in a day, yeah. a lot of money. It, it doesn't ever leave me that she, I guarantee you, she worked harder than me. Yes. And the disparity yeah. in income is yeah. massive.
2: Is nutty, nutty. Yeah. yeah. When people say to me, I say I'm, I've just been really lucky. People um, say, Oh no, you've worked really hard for everything you've gotten. And I, all I say to them is, So do hotel housekeepers.
1: Yes. Yes. You said that there in the book, is. and it just resonated. Yeah. Ah yeah. oh, man, such great stuff. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to say was, do you believe that Trump has actually helped the white working class, and if not? Why did they vote for him? And do they continue to support him?
2: Um, you know, first of all, do I believe that Trump has helped the white working class? I'm not an economist.
1: Yeah, so. right.
2: Uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, and now I'm just going to talk to you as like an ordinary garden variety American from San Francisco.
1: Well, no, can don't. we talk about Harvard uh, educated uh, no, and I all don't. that? OK, <laughs> uh, I,
2: I mean, I think it's important to, n- to know what you don't know. Um, but I do not believe he has helped the white working class um and um i don't believe that that was actually well intentions are uninteresting right. so no i don't believe he's helped the white working class um except in one way which what it which is um he has given blue collar guys more of a sense of social honor and dignity and to the extent that they're loved by blue collar wives he's helped them in that way mm. Um, and I think that, again, I think the opportunity for, you know, whether you're Republican or a Democratic politician, the opportunity is to, number one, stop insulting people, because that just plays into the hands of irresponsible leadership. And number two, actually say, I hear you have an economic grievance. I'm actually going to address it. That would be a very powerful response.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um um, so the other thing, uh, what, you know, my crowd often says is, you know, these people are such idiots, they voted against their own self interest. And I think it's important to recognize, although painful, they didn't. <laughs> they feel that both Republicans and Democrats before Trump, for decades, had not listened to them and not delivered for them. There was this cultural um, you know, uncontested cultural trope that that blue collar guys were stupid and fat, mm-hmm. and nobody took that on particularly. And um, the economic fortunes of American middle class families have really tanked in the past 20 years, and that's true in other advanced industrialized democracies as well. That the where there's been a huge basically transfer of wealth if you look at some of the economic studies um, to the high elites in advanced industrial industrialized democracies and the middle class in China at the expense of the working class in advanced industrialized democracies and they are not amused mm. they under they, they feel that day to day that it used to be that Virtually every American um, born in the 1940s did better than their parents. For Americans born in the 1980s now, it's less than half. So these people did not vote against their own economic self-interest. They have been getting eviscerated economically, and they felt finally somebody is talking
0: about it. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. And with the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, Audible lets you fill your summer with stories like Daring Greatly and Rising Strong by Brene Brown, or even this week's guest, Joan C. Williams, and her book, White Working Class. There's nothing easier than grabbing some books on Audible and listening to them on your commute, or while you're walking your dog, or just doing chores around the house. If I'm doing things around the house and I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm definitely listening and learning on Audible. As an Audible member, you'll get a credit every month good for any audiobook, regardless of price. Your unused credits roll over to the next month. And if you don't like your audiobook, you can exchange it with no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. Go back and re-listen at any time, even if you cancel your membership. Better yet, you can switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo. So here's what you got to do. Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Just go to audible.com smart, or text SMART to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, dot SMART. S M A R T or text smart to 500 500 you can do it with audiobooks and now back to the episode
1: right but i think that is what is so fascinating you said finally somebody is talking about it one of the things i hear in my circle of elites which by the way is comprised of both you know liberals and conservatives is why would they vote for trump he's so rich how can you take a rich guy whose daddy gave him all this money and say he's standing up for me? Don't they see it? And your book, let's say I can't even remember what chapter it was, does such a great job at explaining why the working class resents the elites, but does not at all resent or, in fact, looks up to the ultra wealthy. Could you go into that for us?
2: It's because of the class culture gap. It's because in the among the professional managerial elite. The, the central of life is self-development. To develop every little micro-talent um, in order that you can, you know, crush it and rise in the elite. Um, the central logic of life in the working class of all races is um, self-discipline—the kind that gets you up and to work on time every day without an attitude to a not very fulfilling job which you keep for 40 years straight, even though you hate it, because otherwise you would fall into poverty. Um, that culture gap between self-development on the one hand and self-discipline on the other, means that the white, the, and this is true, again, working class, working class looks, um, uh, regardless of race, often looks up, although there is an unracial element here. So let me say white working class for a minute. The white working class looks um, up to the professional managerial elite and they think they're a bunch of pathetic pencil pushers um, who spend their life sucking up to each other through office politics. They, um, there's kind of contempt going in both directions. And so they don't want to do that. They don't want to be a damn lawyer. Um, They want to be exactly who they are just with the kind of money that would allow them to say, you're fired to Mm. the jerk who orders them around. They wanna be Trump, Mm -hmm. they wanna be Trump. They don't wanna be me, some law professor, because that would require them to completely change their value system. And the other thing that, that has married Trump to the white working class, and I think it's really important to recognize at this point, there's a huge gender effect. Trump has become, among Trump voters, he has become more popular, not a lot, but more popular among a very certain group, um, men without a college degree. He has become less popular uh, among women without a college degree, and also college-educated women. So what is what Trump is offering blue-collar guys that they find so alluring is social honor. He is not offering them a better life economically. That's just my analysis, not being an econ- economist. Right. But he is offering them a lot of social honor, and he's enacting a certain kind of masculinity, which is very in, in, soothing and empowering to them. Um, the kind of, you know, all he's uh, enacting um, a sort of exaggerated form of. Uh, of you know, well you know his button is bigger than Kim Jong Un. Right. You don't have to go very far, right? Right. right. He's got a really big button. Uh huh. Um, and what matters is how big your button is. Yep. Um, so that's the kind of um, of kind of empowered I am. Dig. I am full of dignity. I am top of the heap because I'm a real man. You know, that's that's very attractive for um, a group of people who has seen their status as providers slipping from their grasp in the past 25 years. Because whether you're, no matter what class you are as an American man, we still measure masculinity um, by the size of a paycheck more than we like to admit. Sure. Their paychecks have, have fallen.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and that that stuck out to me. I grew up in a household with a, a single earner. Right. And so now that I'm married, it took me a while to come to grips with this fact that if we want to live here and live at least the life that we by no means it's it's extravagant, but that we want to live, we both have to work. And that was a real ego check for years. Now, I think what helped is looking around and noticing, wow, in this area, everyone works, So maybe I'm not that different, but I'll tell you this, if I was in, if if I was in where I grew up and was like, hey, we both have to work to make ends meet, I would, I know I would, I, it still kind of feels like I would feel less of a man. I would feel like I can't provide for my family. I get that.
2: You know, we like to think this is a thing of the past, but there was just a very recent study, um, about attitudes towards um, being a provider. And most Americans still believe, think less of a man if he's not a provider. And most Americans don't think less of a woman if she's not a provider.
1: That doesn't shock me at all. At all. You know,
2: one of my, my first well-known book was called Unbending Gender. Gender is pretty unbending.
1: There was something else here. You kind of, as you were talking about Trump and the button, I, I wanted to make sure I covered. You talk about how, you talk about political correctness. And this is something that has always baffled me watching Trump, but explain why being against political correctness has actually become so popular. I was actually watching The Daily Show, my elitist, you know, nightly humor. And, you know, and and he was talking about how the same thing is happening around the globe. There was an interview with, I forget, some other leader. And they said, you know, he's really good at saying two different things in an interview, but it's sounding like, it, you know, it's still intelligent, you know, two, two completely opposite views contradicting himself and doing it well. Right. So mm-hmm. this idea of, oh, I can be brash. And what I say, you don't have to take on face value, political correctness. Why has that become so popular?
2: Um, I, I think because in the United States, we are deeply committed to denying the existence of class. And so the rhetoric that we, you know, my type, my crowd, me, including me, developed, um, talks about a lot about white privilege. It talks a lot about gender privilege and often um, talks about, you know, who has it all? White men. And the so there's a group of white men who don't have it all because they do have gender privilege and they do have racial privilege, but they do not have class privilege. And um, by hearing the elite describe them as privileged, um, and by the way, say, you're racist if you deny it, um, it made them really angry because they go like, I'm not privileged. What about me? And so the conversation that we constructed about privilege made them really, really furious. And the other thing is that the, what we have to recognize is, um, I mean, what are the issues I have spent my life pursuing? Um, equality for women. Um, one of my earliest political commitments was for abortion rights. Um, the environment. Uh, now the whole range of LGBTQ. Those, all of those issues, um, abortion rights, are because I thought it was so important that women be able to engage in self-development by having full careers. That's actually an expression of class privilege. Mm -hmm. LGBTQ, because from you know, I was, I came of age in the '70s, and we just thought that full self-development sexually was like part and essence of human dignity. That's actually. An expression of the self-development ethic, which is part of my class privilege, mm-hmm. environment. Environment, and I was, you know, very early an environmentalist, um, uh, is, I mean, that it has, that there has been, um, I mean, that's a complicated issue, but that has nothing to do with social inequality, and it affects the elites um, as much as it affects, well, that's not true either, Environment is complicated, so let's just bracket that. But so that's uh, you can edit out the environment because that could be a whole show too. Um, so, but the the first two are really clear, um, and so the the conversation that has been constructed that is now being caricatured as political correctness has a lot is is driven by that self development ethic, which means that it is an unself conscious and in fact, completely clueless um, expression of class privilege. And that's another reason why, you know, everything I believed and worked for my whole life is written off by as political correctness, because uh, we have not addressed that class dynamic.
1: Yes. And I, I, I've been saving this. This is the thing that just hit me about your book. I, I actually, as soon as I read it, I was at dinner with my entire family and I just preached it because it was so enlightening to me you explain how various classes raise their kids but based on the values that help them survive and thrive in that class so yes so that to me all of a sudden I'm like I get it right because I don't want to personalize this but you talk about in there how for the elite you you say things like I'm spiritual but not religious right yes and that's a that's a privilege to think like that. And, and for a long time, I thought, no, no, I'm just intelligent. I'm just I'm just thinking about it correctly, in all honesty. However, yeah. you talk about religion being a social uh, I don't want to call it a crutch, but a, a benefit, a thing that really solidifies the community in the white working class. This idea of of Teaching the values that help you survive in your class being necessary, but also prevent movement out of the class was incredible. Would you go into that more for me?
2: Yeah. I mean, the idea that we are all taught at our mother's knees the skills we need to be successful adults, in other words, to succeed at the jobs that are going to be offered to us, comes from actually a book written in the 1970s by Paul Willis, a Brit, about Britain. But it's obviously true. Uh, I mean, in, in, uh, in my crowd, I mean, I spent, I have two wonderful kids, glad you asked.
1: <laughs>
2: and, um, you know, but I, I saw my role as a mother to develop, to discover their every little micro talent and develop it post haste. That's what, what it would, uh, would, was being a good mother was, you know, was in my circle. Um, so there was this, um, self-development ethic and, the the, uh, the statement that I'm spiritual, not religious, that is just a socially acceptable way of saying, of saying I'm smart. It's a way of displaying <laughs> yes. human capital, yes. which is what we do all the time. I mean, do we do we spend a huge amount of time displaying human capital for other people of the elite? Yes. That's called social life. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, so that is that, and that is completely part of the economy of dignity in the elite. In the in in the broad middle classes, this is true actually of all non-elites of all races. By the way, um, there's actually studies that show that the elite is more focused on individual achievement, whereas the middle classes are more focused on solidarity and community, um, and, and they, by the way, are brought up with this ethic of self-discipline, which is what is going to help them um, in the jobs that they're gonna be offered. And so they highly value the institutions, the traditional institutions that aid self-discipline, religion, family values, the military, and the display of human capital not only is not the coin of the realm in these broad middle classes, um, it's considered to be um, evidence that you're stuck on yourself, and you don't know where you came from, and you're a bad person. So um, it makes perfect sense in that context that they would, you know, the joke in California is, you know. How do you, what do you call a Jew in California? A Buddhist. Um, so, <laughs> and that's displaying oh. self invention, displaying self development, displaying that you're a thoughtful, intelligent person. Yeah. You know, you know, what do you call a Catholic in Pittsburgh? A Catholic. You know. Wow. Um, and so, and so, I I think that the the condescension of the elite for religion um, is, you know, one of the flashpoints of class, cultural class conflict in the U.S.
1: In the last 10 minutes that we have, I want to see if we touch one, maybe two subjects that you address in your book, because I want people to understand one of the reasons I love the book is the way it's set up. One of my biggest issues with books these days, and you can ask my wife, I get sent about three a day. They arrive at my doorstep (laughs) because (laughs) to be on the show. And I I read a lot of them or peruse or mostly I get through about 30 pages and I go, okay, here's the reason. Most books are good for the first 10th of the book. And then they're just words trying to fill in a full book. I wish more were written like yours. You do this. You basically say, in my life studying this, here are the questions that I get asked most and here are my answers to them. So every chapter is extremely relevant. I want to cover one, maybe two of those. One of the questions is, why don't the people who benefit most from government help seem to appreciate it? And this stuck out to me because living in D.C. but not working in the government, I do see the inefficiencies. But you quote some statistics here that I want the listeners to know. 19% of Americans say they can trust government always or most of the time, which is the lowest in the past 50 years. Only 20% say that government programs are well-run. However, 94% believe the government should keep us safe from terrorism. 88% should respond to natural disasters. 87% ensure safe food and medicine. 75% protect the environment. You see where I'm going here. We say the Mm -hmm. government is useless, and then we go, oh, except for everything. Tell us more (laughs) about that.
2: Yeah, Americans hate government, but they love government programs. Yes, I mean this is this is the brilliance of the anti-government um, movement of the past forty years. There's been a very uh, a, a, which I complete as an as an intellectual. I like to think of myself as an intellectual. I think it's one of the most creative intellectual interventions in American culture in the past forty years. The I mean, how do you take a very complex post-industrialized society in which government is deeply intertwined with capitalism and with the quality of everyday life and demonize government. That's what they did. Hats off. Brilliant. Brilliant. The 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 pro-government response, completely ineffectual, completely mm. ineffectual. And so what has happened is that um, I mean, how did how was this brilliant creative feat accomplished? Go back to the um, and this is the really the white working class because this is uh, the black working class, which is the other group for, for which there's data, is really different here. Um, among the white working class, here they are. They're focused on self discipline, dignity through hard work. Um, I and what we have done is dropped down two kinds of government programs one are universal programs that are framed as you've earned this Medicare and Social Security those are untouchable politically except for actually Republicans are now you know the whole tax cut the whole st- theory behind the tax cut is to eviscerate them we'll uh, see if it goes there yeah but um, Those are untouchable politically because they fit in um, to that ideology of I've worked hard, I've earned this, and now I'm entitled to it. Disability also fits into that.
1: Ah, but into- don't don't call it an entitlement or else people no, will no, say, no, 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 yeah.
2: No, but it, re- it is the residue of hard
1: work. Sure.
2: That's the way it's conceptualized. Huge numbers of white working class men on, on disability. Mm-hmm. Then there's a different kind of government program. And they are targeted on the poor and based on need. And um, that has been what has been at the center of um, the kind of progressive idealism for the past 40 years. When we look at the history of those programs, number one, uh, the subsidies they provide tend to be stigmatized, sporadic, and sparse because they're politically always embattled. And the reason they're always embattled is that um, sort of anti- the anti-government business elite can caricature them as handouts to the poor paid with your hard-earned tax dollars. Who are they talking to there? They are talking to the white working class. Yeah. And by the way, often um, the 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 uh, the entitlement programs are designed so that people get people in that bottom thirty percent, truly low-income people get benefits, and working-class people just a little bit above them get zero. And so their their lived experience is, why are they getting that? I'm not. You see this in "Hillbilly Elegy," by the way, where that. Where JD Vance is, um, I think, in high school, working for, uh, working in a grocery store as a cashier, and he sees um, people on food stamps um, with cell phones and buying, you know, buying non healthy food, and he gets very resentful. Like, why are my tax dollars going to support these people? So that is, um, that is the, that is the class resentment that has been very, very effectively mobilized um, um, to kind of demonize government. And you know, the simple, the simple answer, it's not simple, but it's conceptually to do, but it's conceptually simple, is if you want to give social benefits, do it the way the rest of the world does, through universal programs, because mm-hmm. that means you have cross-class support for those programs. And by the way, you'll probably get a lot better benefits for the poor because you won't have these politically embattled programs that give benefits that are stingy, sporadic and stigmatized.
1: Right. Look, I know we have to go, but, but for those listening, I, I just want to touch on some things that we haven't covered and, and say why, if you've enjoyed this interview, why the book is, is this but an extension. Questions such as, is the working class just racist? Are they just sexist? And here's my, one of my favorites that I, I had to read a couple times. Don't they understand that manufacturing jobs aren't coming back? Things like this, your book covers it. Again, it's white working class, overcoming class cluelessness in America. Joan, are you writing more right now? What's going on? Where can we continue to learn on this subject?
2: Um, I am trying to write um, op eds and magazine pieces—they um, have often been difficult to place. Um, mm-hmm. um, some of this is pretty edgy stuff, but I am—I've been writing um, for places like The Atlantic. I've had an op ed in the New York Times, one in the Wall Street Journal. So I've been trying to write as things emerge for the popular press.
1: And, and give I am us... also oh,
2: thinking of writing another book, but. Haven't decided on that. There will be a new edition of white working class that addresses some of the things that have happened since the election, for sure.
1: Well, to the listeners, I want to let you know, I also have recently been following Joan on Twitter, and she is at Joan C. Williams. And for example, the latest tweet, it says, candidates take note, 52% of voters agree that they would never vote for a person accused of sexual harassment. This is one more example of what I call the norms cascade, a monumental shift in social norms has changed the game in industries everywhere. Anyways, if you like this type of stuff, the statistics, the data, and the opinion, Joan C. Williams. Joan, do you have a website as well that you want to draw people to or no?
2: Yes, my website is joancwilliams.com.
1: Fantastic. Well, Joan, again, thank you so much. Incredible book, incredible insight. Really appreciate you being on the show.
2: Thanks so much for the invitation.
1: All right. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed
0: that interview with Joan C. Williams. As a reminder, her book, White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And you probably don't need the reminder, but just in case, if you decide to purchase the book through Amazon, please don't forget to use our Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. As always, any purchase you make through that link comes to no extra cost to you and it greatly helps support the show. And if you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to this show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're interested in seeing the back catalog of episodes, you can go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, check them out all over there, or sign up for the newsletter if you're interested. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great episodes coming up and we will see you all next episode.